You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Remember the Colorado baker who refused to bake a cake for same-sex couples because of his religious objections? Now a Colorado website designer doesn't want to create pages for same-sex weddings for the same reason. And the Supreme Court is taking her appeal. Joining me is Steve Sanders, a professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Steve, what was your reaction when you learned the court was taking this case? Well, my reaction was that the social conservative legal organization that has brought so many of these cases, so many of these religiously based challenges to LGBT rights laws may finally at long last have found a winner. The circumstances are sufficiently different from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case of several years ago. The the facts of this case combined with some changes in the court since the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was decided suggest to me that this one is going to be a tougher case and will be a case where the plaintiff here, the person challenging the law, is more likely to prevail. Let's go back to the Masterpiece Cake Shop Mm -hmm. case for a moment. So the court there ruled in favor of the Colorado baker, but the court did it on very narrow grounds. Just explain what happened there. That's right. That was a 2018 decision. So you had a baker in also Colorado. The cases are coming from the same state, oddly enough. You had a baker in Colorado who said, I am perfectly happy to serve gay people. I just won't provide a cake for a same-sex wedding. And there was never any issue of the message on the cake or writing on the cake, even just a generically decorated wedding cake 
speak. He said, I can't provide that for a same-sex wedding because essentially I speak through my cakes. My cakes are my artistry. And the First Amendment prevents the state of Colorado from essentially commandeering my artistry and forcing me to, in effect, endorse a wedding by providing a cake that I can't in good conscience endorse. People criticized that reasoning and said, look, a cake is a commercial product. Nobody goes to a wedding and thinks that, you know, the baker has blessed this wedding when they look at the cake. But the court ended up dodging that First Amendment speech argument by ruling on narrower grounds. Essentially, it picked out some difficult and sort of sarcastic comments that had been made by the authorities in Colorado who'd initially adjudicated that case. It was a state civil rights commission. And basically, the court said that civil rights commission had shown hostility toward the baker's religion. So in essence, it was a way of saying he didn't get a fair hearing. His religion was treated with a sort of contempt by state officials. And that's enough to say he prevails on his claim that his free exercise of religion was violated. But the court in doing that avoided having to decide the much more novel First Amendment theory that the baker and his lawyers had put forward. Steve, explain why the baker and the web designer are making free speech claims instead of free exercise claims. And explain in more depth what they sidestepped, Steve. So the the baker had invoked uh, both the free exercise of religion and the and freedom of speech, two different parts of the First Amendment. The problem for religious challengers to civil rights laws is that the doctrine of the free exercise clause is relatively weak when it comes to challenging laws that are just general laws that apply to everybody, like civil rights laws. There was no evidence that the baker's religion had been singled out or targeted for disadvantageous treatments. So the free exercise clause does not provide a very powerful weapon for attacking civil rights laws. That's why organizations like the legal group that represented both Jack Phillips, the baker, and now the web designer in the new case have really gone to the part of the First Amendment that deals with speech, and particularly a line of cases called the Compelled Speech Doctrine, which basically stand for the principle that government can't force you to express a message that you don't seek to express, that it would violate your conscience or just your political beliefs or your preferences to express. And the innovation here is that they've made the argument that the provider of a commercial product like a wedding cake, or in this case, a web designer, that their speech, their creativity, their expression is being compelled, commandeered by the government when they have to provide a service to a same-sex wedding because they don't want to do that because it violates their religion. But their their claim is more about speech than about religion. In fact, in the case that the Supreme Court has now decided to hear, they have basically said, we're not interested in the free exercise clause arguments. We're not opening up that can of worms. We're just interested in the First Amendment speech arguments that you have to make. Steve, explain why the baker and the web designer are making free speech claims instead of free exercise claims. The problem for religious challengers to civil rights laws is that the doctrine of the free exercise clause is relatively weak when it comes to challenging laws that are just general laws that apply to everybody, like 
civil rights laws. There was no evidence that the Baker's religion had been singled out or targeted for disadvantageous treatment. So that's why organizations like the legal group that represented both the Baker and now the web designer in the new case have really gone to the part of the First Amendment that deals with speech, and particularly the principle that government can't force you to express a message that you don't seek to express, that it would violate your conscience or just your political beliefs or your preferences to express. And the innovation here is that they've made the argument that the provider of a commercial product like a wedding cake, or in this case, a web designer, that their speech, their creativity, their expression is being compelled, commandeered by the government when they have to provide a service to a same-sex wedding because they don't want to do that because it violates their religion. It sounds like the web designer case is exactly the same as the Baker's case. What's different about it? it It's a little different because, um, you know, again, Jack Phillips basically said, you know, I'm no different than uh, a web designer or a singer or somebody, you know, I I use my artistry in my work. And and again, the, the, the I think a lot of people said, well, you know, yes, the government couldn't force him to bake a rainbow-colored cake that said, God bless this gay wedding, but that would be going too far, but he wouldn't even provide just a generic wedding cake uh, to a same-sex wedding. He still said, I speak through my artistry. And, and, and you know, many people sort of disagreed and said, well, you can only go so far in saying a, 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 a commercial product like a wedding cake represents your speech. But a, a web designer is different. I mean, the, 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 the web design for this wedding is presumably going to celebrate the couple, the, a same-sex couple. I should add that this case is being brought by the web designer on the anticipation that she will be charged with violating the law if she goes through with her plans. There is actually no one that she has denied service to. But she's saying, look, you know, inherently, uh, if I design a website for a wedding, that is going to celebrate that particular wedding. It's going to send a message about a same-sex couple that is one of joy and celebration and endorsement, and I can't do that as a matter of my conscience. So it's more like the situation, which was not the case in Masterpiece, but where if, if 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 a customer requested a specific message on a cake, I think many people were more willing to say, okay, that involves the baker's conscience and he can't be forced to do that. That's why I think the wedding web page designer is a much more attractive plaintiff for that argument because a, a, a web design, a website is inherently a medium of communication in a way that that wedding cake is at best kind of disputable, whether that's a medium of communication or not. A, a website is, and inevitably this website is not going to be some generic thing. It's going to have pictures of the couple and, again, endorse the idea in, in some sense that this, gay, this same-sex wedding is a good thing. And, and that's what the web designer says, look, in good conscience, respectfully, I just can't do that. I will refer you to somebody else who can do that. If you're a gay person who wants a website for your birthday party, I'm happy to do that. Um, what he, what she is saying is I can't get on board with the idea of using my 
writing, artistic skills, technical skills, to create something which communicates a message of approval and endorsement and celebration for something that violates my religious conscience. So the Tenth Circuit ruled against the web designer, and the Supreme Court often takes cases in order to reverse the results. And the court has changed a great deal since the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Two justices who champion gay rights, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Kennedy, are no longer on the court. Do those factors point to what the result may be in this case? I think they do it because of the way the court chose to resolve the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. That was a 7-2 to two decision. Even some of the more liberal justices, such as Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer, joined the outcome there. So we don't know what Breyer and Kagan would have done on those pure First Amendment speech questions that the court didn't adjudicate. But the court is more conservative than it was. Justice Barrett is sort of known to be especially interested in and sensitive to questions of religious liberty. And so I, I think, yes, it does make a difference that it's a somewhat more conservative court. I, I don't know that it makes a huge difference because, again, we didn't really get a decision on the same question as Masterpiece. It's not as though the court is being asked to now reconsider something it decided in that case. But on balance, yes, it is an even more conservative court. And this, again, I think is a more attractive vehicle if you're going to challenge gay rights laws on the basis of a First Amendment claim of right. So now let's turn to another issue involving transgender bathroom rights. What is the issue in this case before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals? Law is really now grappling in a very serious way with the different forms that discrimination against transgender people can take. There have been cases about employment. There have been cases about the right to medical care. And there have been cases about access to certain gendered public facilities, such as bathrooms and locker rooms. This case involves a high school student who was anatomically and at birth assigned the gender of female who transitioned and now identifies as a gender identity of male, presents to the world as a male is undergoing medical care to facilitate a gender transition to being male. And this student said, I am male. That is my identity. I dress as a male. I feel I am a male. And so I should be able to use the male washroom at school and the male locker room. That's who I am. And even though it's different from my anatomical or the sex on my birth certificate, how I identify now is what matters. In a similar case involving a, a Virginia high school student, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals basically agreed and said in not letting that student use the facilities that were consistent with his gender identity in saying you have to use a separate private bathroom, that's our way of accommodating you. The Fourth Circuit said in that case, a transgender boy's rights under both the Constitution and federal sex discrimination law, Type 9, were violated. And so here in Florida, involving another case involving 
a transgender boy. The lower courts and the Court of Appeals had come to the same conclusion, had basically said in not allowing this student to express their gender identity and use facilities consistent with their gender identity, it was a form of discrimination that violated the anti-sex discrimination provisions of both Title IX and the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. But the full 11th Circuit decided to rehear the case on bank, and it's a court where conservative judges outnumber liberal judges. The hearing that took place, the arguments that took place, suggested that this full on bank court may be coming to a different conclusion than the panel had come to and might decide either that the school is entitled to require students to use one facility or the other, boys or girls, based on their anatomical sex or their sex at birth, or the court might say letting them use a private gender-neutral bathroom is a sufficient accommodation that we not only have to worry about the rights and the dignity of the transgender student, but we also have to be concerned about the privacy concerns that other students might have, and that cases like this call for a more delicate balancing than, say, an employer who simply wants to fire an adult transgender person from a job. So I think we're seeing some tension there. If the 11th Circuit rules in favor of the school here and against the transgender student, that would create a split in the circuits. Would you say the Supreme Court has been avoiding the transgender bathroom issue so far? The conventional wisdom among Supreme Court litigators is that a circuit split where, you know, one federal court takes one view, another federal court takes another view, that that is potentially the best ticket to the Supreme Court because then you've got, you know, federal law means different things in different parts of the country. Um, I don't know that I'd say there's a lot of evidence the Supreme Court has been avoiding the issue. The Supreme Court did decline to grant cert in the Virginia case I mentioned, the Gavin Grimm case. But again, that was a case that ruled in favor of the student. It didn't invalidate or strike down any law. It just said that the bathroom policy as to that student was unconstitutional. That wasn't necessarily a case that was crying out for the Supreme Court's review. In fact, it might have been kind of extraordinary if the court had taken that. A circuit split where you have two different courts looking at essentially the same set of facts and coming to different conclusions under federal constitutional and and statutory law, that is probably something that would be harder for the Supreme Court to ignore. Thanks, Steve. That's Steve Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Some Supreme Court justices appeared annoyed with how the Biden administration rescinded a hot-button Trump-era immigration policy as they wrestle with the tangled legal aftermath and what to do about it. The concerns crossed ideological lines at oral arguments on Wednesday over handling of the so-called public charge rule. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, this gets awfully confusing. So start by explaining the issue. The substantive issue that precipitated the litigation was a 2019 public charge rule that was issued by President Trump. And what the public charge rule did was as follows. There has been a law for hundreds of years, literally, in our statute that says that a person is not allowed to get immigration status in the United States if they're likely to become a public charge. That's all it says. And so then the question is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that you're going to be dependent on the state? And so the Trump administration decided to issue a regulation that would put a lot more meat on those bones. And the regulation that they put in essentially said something along the lines of, if you've ever received any cash assistance from any state or local government, which was new, that was not previously in the law, you would be considered a public charge. But also it added these nebulous factors that could be considered that had never been considered before, such as the age of the person, their skill level, their knowledge of English, etc., that would allow an adjudicator on a case-by-case basis to decide if someone was likely to become a public charge, even if they had never collected previously any benefits from the U.S. government. And so as soon as that rule came out, states across the country and cities uh, sued the federal government and said, we don't want this public charge rule to go into effect. And that litigation was going on, and the government was winning the litigation in the Supreme Court. They were losing in the lower court, but they were winning it in the Supreme Court. And it looked like all of it was going to be dispensed with when Joe Biden gets elected and and says, well, I want to get rid of this policy. And there's one court whose decision hasn't been reversed by the Supreme Court. And so that's where this case begins. The states here, Republican-led states, are trying to basically fight for a rule that the Biden administration has abandoned? Right. So here's what happened. So once the Biden administration gets elected and goes into power, they say, we want to get rid of this public charge rule. And so ordinarily, if there's a rule that you want to get rid of that 
is in effect. You have to do what's called a notice of rescission of the rule, and then that has to go through public comment for 30 or 60 days. You have to give reasons for why you're rescinding the rule, and then you finally rescind the rule. In this case, that didn't happen because there was one court in Illinois, in the District of Illinois, that had a ruling that was still in effect when the Biden administration came into power that said that this Trump public charge rule was unlawful and could not go into effect and had a nationwide injunction. And that ruling was for a different reason than the Supreme Court, who had ruled in other cases that the public charge rule could go into effect in cases in many other circuits that had been filed. And so what the Biden administration did is it said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to say we're dismissing all of these cases. So there was a case pending in the Supreme Court where oral argument was going to happen. Ninth Circuit case. There was cases all around the country. And what the Biden administration said is, these people suing us, California, the cities and the localities, we agree with them. And so what we will say is, look, we're not going to defend this case. We're not going to defend this public charge rule. And so dismiss your cases. So everybody dismisses their cases. The Supreme Court case gets dismissed. And what the Biden administration says is this public charge rule is no longer in effect because the only case that has not been dismissed is the Illinois case. And in the Illinois case, we lost. We were enjoined from putting in this rule. And so that's the state of play before Arizona and other states get involved. They then see that this happened. Wait a second. The public charge rule has been invalidated through this interesting method where all the lawsuits were dismissed except the one where the federal government lost. That can't be right. We need to revive one of these other lawsuits where we were winning so we can bring it back to the Supreme Court and we can win. And even if the federal government doesn't want to defend this, we as a state should be allowed to defend this. So Arizona goes to both the Ninth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit, which is Illinois, and says, we want to intervene, meaning we want to take the place of the federal government so that we can defend the Trump public charge regulation. And the Ninth Circuit says, no, you can't do this because, one, the case has already been dismissed. It's too late. And two, this injunction that we had in place was only for California and Washington anyway. It wasn't a nationwide injunction case. And so Arizona, you have nothing to do with this. So why are you even involved? You're not being harmed by this case. And so that's the issue that goes up to the Supreme Court and where yesterday there was oral argument about whether the Ninth Circuit should have permitted Arizona to resuscitate the Ninth Circuit case and bring it back to the Supreme Court for a decision. So it struck me that some of the justices were, you know, annoyed with what the Biden administration did. So you had Justice Elena Kagan saying the Supreme Court shouldn't be green lighting that behavior for your administration or any other administration. Chief Justice Roberts saying it would be really quite a license for collusive action for any incoming administration to change the rules. Then there were other justices who said, you know, administrations change and the rules change. Clarence Thomas said, I've been through five administrations. The rules change. So explain how the justices sort of saw this. So the issue comes down to this. I think there was a consensus that the ideal way that you would normally want to handle something like what happened here would be to file a brand new lawsuit 
against the federal government that says we don't like the way you rescinded this rule because you did it in an illegal way. You should have gone through the normal rescission process and not do this funky thing you did where you dismissed all the cases you didn't like and you kept the one case you did like. So that's what the justices wanted. But where the Arizona Solicitor General really made a little bit of traction is to say, we don't know if a case like that would have succeeded. It's possible that all the courts, including the Supreme Court, would have said, no, 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 you can't file a lawsuit like this because they didn't rescind the rule. What they did was they acquiesced to a bad judicial ruling. So they didn't change anything. When a judge enjoins a rule, then you're not allowed to follow that rule anymore. You have to stop following the rule. You have to go back to the status quo. And so they did that. They didn't rescind it. And so that's the problem is Arizona was caught in a catch-22 about whether the right solution here was to file a new lawsuit saying that this rescission was done improperly or whether to intervene in the existing lawsuit so that they could get this issue teed back up to the Supreme Court about whether the public charge rule was lawful or not. And this is where I think the Supreme Court is stuck because nobody knows what the right solution is. Your argument was very laborious and confused about what the right solution should have been there. Well, give us an idea where the justices stood. So there was basically four different camps. One camp was, you can't do anything about this. And that was sort of the Sotomayor camp of, there's nothing you can do here. There was a second camp that said, maybe intervention is the right move, but you should have done it in the Seventh Circuit case, the Illinois case, because that's the case where the injunction actually exists. And what's weird about that is that seems to make a lot of sense, but that's just not the case. That's before the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court would need to dismiss this case and admit it just wasted everyone's time and then wait for the Illinois case to come back up and literally decide this exact same issue. And so that's possible. That's that's the most logical, easy way to solve this problem. But it will literally have meant that all of this briefing and oral argument and time and expense and everything was completely useless and, and just was a waste of time for everybody. But that is a possibility. That's the second. The third would be that they would say in the future when something like this happens, you have to file a brand new APA lawsuit, Administrative Procedure Act lawsuit, that says this is, a, this is a de facto improper rescission without notice and comment, and so you can't do things this way. That would be the third uh, way to do this. Or the fourth way to do this, which uh, Justice Gorsuch was teasing at with the federal government would be to say that, look, you can't issue nationwide injunctions in the first place, so this district court ruling wouldn't stand anyway because you can't, they shouldn't have been able to issue a nationwide injunction. I don't think they'll be able to go there because this case doesn't even have the Illinois case in it, so it would be too much judicial activism there. But that seems to be the four solutions they're trying to see which one they think it's going to happen. And so the second one and the third one seem the most likely, which is either that we wait till the, the Illinois case comes or 
they should have filed a new APA lawsuit, and they can go ahead and do that now if they want to. So let me ask you this. Does everyone agree that the Biden administration went about this in the wrong way? I think out of the justices, probably about six of them thought that this was kind of an irregular, creative, tricky way of doing things. But nobody said it was illegal. People just thought that this thing created an unprecedented situation that needed to be resolved so that there couldn't be these kinds of uh, collusive actions in the future with future administrations. That there would have to be some way for people who wanted to defend an existing regulation to be able to do it. And so the question is, what mechanism will be created to allow that? The Biden administration, if it goes through the right procedural process, can rescind this rule. Yes. And that's that's another thing that the federal government was claiming, is that now the Biden administration has issued a new public charge rule that just happened last month. And so we should just forget everything else that happened and pretend that this is now the rescission and we're starting from that place. So why is Arizona wasting time with this lawsuit when the Biden administration is going to rescind the rule through the regular process and institute a new rule? What's the point of this? Two or three of the justices made that point. Breyer made that point. Sotomayor made that point. And Kagan made that point. The state of Arizona basically wanted to be able to go back to court and get an advisory opinion, essentially, saying that the Trump administration rule was legal so that they could take that advisory opinion and use it in any other forum to prevent the Biden administration from either invalidating that rule or from putting in a new rule in the future. To the point, and we've discussed this before, some justices said it was unprecedented. Others said this happens all the time. Arizona can't force the federal government to keep a rule that the federal government doesn't want to. That's what happens when administrations change. And yet it seems like in this case and in the return to Mexico case, that's just what they're trying to do. Correct, with one caveat. So the issue isn't can Arizona force or not force the federal government to have a particular rule. Everybody conceded that the federal government has that prerogative to rescind the rule. But the question is, does the federal government, if it doesn't follow the actual procedure that's normally followed to rescind the rule, is it able to rescind the rule by means of dismissing some lawsuits and keeping others, and with the ones that it keeps, not allow people to intervene in those lawsuits to try to at least defend the position of the prior administration. And so that's where it gets a little bit complicated here. And from that perspective, that's what the court's going to have to decide. Is is that a grievance that is so valid that you do need to create an ability for states to intervene there? Or is that grievance well noted, but in the end it doesn't matter because this is just something they can do, and their solution is just to file a new lawsuit saying that the new rule is arbitrary and capricious and just leave it at that. And so maybe that's what they can do in that situation. But that's what the court's going to have to decide. And what's unique is just that this is just a very rare set of facts, which is that an administration changes, there's some decisions in your favor, there's some opposed, and then the court moots out the ones that are opposed but keeps the one that's in the favor. 
So that's it's just that fact pattern that's new. But the changing of positions is definitely not a new thing. After the Trump administration, after four years of the Trump administration not following the Administrative Procedures Act, I would think that all these questions would have been answered by this time. You would have thought so, but just in this one instance, this presented a new set of facts. Now, I do think if what had happened was that the Biden administration had entered into a settlement with the plaintiffs, the court would have been much angrier and would have said, wait a second, there is so much collusion here, we have to let the states get involved. But that's not what happened here. There was not a settlement reached. It was just that they agreed with the one court that agreed with them, and then they mooted out all the cases where the courts didn't agree with them. And it's just that that hadn't happened before. And so the question is, is that going to be a way? And, I mean, you're not going to be able to intentionally ever see up those facts. Those facts are going to have to be accidental in every future case. But in future cases where there's an administration that changes and there's a diversion of opinion, then can you take advantage of that to rescind rules? And that's what this is ultimately going to come down to. Thanks, Leon, for helping us untangle that procedural mess. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to catch the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.